what a day that will be when our Savior I shall see. We truly believe here at this church that the Bible, we believe, clearly expresses <clears throat> that His um, He actually will come to this earth and reign. To believe otherwise, you have to spiritualize the text. Meaning that His church is His glory and that's all that we'll see on this earth. The problem is there are too many passages that tell us He's coming again. And there's too many passages saying He'll rule and reign with a rod of iron. Well, you really can't do that if He's not here. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. What a great thing. Maybe that's the next song we should have as our hymn of the month. <laughs> coming again. If He's not coming again, then there would be no reason why Jesus would say, as he was leaving the temple for the last time, you will not see me again until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He only says that four times, three or four times in the, whole, in the text, but amen, he says it three or four times. Praise God. Romans 12, verse 14, we're actually in verse 16, we will jump up to that. The Bible says, be of the same mind one toward another, toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. This comes on the heels of rejoice with those that do rejoice, weep with those that weep which came on the heels of talking about unsaved people. And so I believe that this is talking about unsaved, although other commentators and preachers would disagree with that. There is an uh, uh, issue of whether it is or whether it isn't. This morning, I'm going to share with you both aspects of that. Um, <clears throat> you know, if we're going to be kind to the unsaved, which is what we should be doing Amen. Why? We once were absolutely the spawn of Satan also. Dead men walking, Ephesians chapter 2. But praise God, someone saw fit to love us enough to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with us. The gospel being Jesus came, lived, died, buried, rose again, and is living at the right hand of God. Amen. If we will just repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we too can be saved. So we need the Gospel. They need the, they need the Gospel. They're not going to hear unless someone loves them enough to share the Gospel with them. Be of the same mind one towards another. This text is quite interesting and we will struggle through this because how many of you if you read this in a different version that you may have a different translation it's a little different than what is read up written up here there's some nuances that are different and usually that's the case and the reason is is the greek is so difficult here commentators struggle with it a lot they're not exactly sure how to deal with these things. And um, there's one author, his name is uh, Schreiner, Thomas Schreiner, uh, a professor at, Cent uh, at uh, Southern Seminary. He, he is also a pastor, and he wrote this commentary on Romans, and it's this three or four pages of trying to deal with the nuances of the Greek, and it's extremely difficult to understand. That being said, how many realize that 
This is one of those sermons that takes a lot of time to prepare for if it's hard to deal with, if, if those scholars are having a hard time dealing with it. How do I deal with it? How many understand that? So I'll be honest with you, it's very difficult this week. But um, I am going to do my best with what I believe it's trying to say. Does that make sense? We're not going to just, well, I don't know, so let's just skip it. Listen, if, if a pastor does that, fire him. Fire him. Help us understand this. God didn't put it there just to skip it. Are you kidding? Be of the same mind one towards another. John Piper starts out when he preaches on this sermon. I'll give you his introduction, what I think is very pertinent for today. He says, we have grown accustomed in the modern Western world to take for granted that we have the inalienable human rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think I've read that somewhere. We assume that our rights should be protected by law and by force if necessary. And we feel a bewildered, almost speechless rage when our rights are violated and nothing is done about it. I don't know when he wrote that, but it was before COVID. That's prophecy, really. Such rights do exist, and they exist largely because of the Christian worldview, of which, and I, I'm not copying him verbatim, but of which 51% of all evangelical pastors have. What? Yeah, study just done in two... 2022, 51% of evangelical pastors have a Christian worldview. Now that's the Olstein part of it. What's the reality? 49% of evangelical pastors do not have a Christian worldview. That's a problem. 12% of pastors in general have a Christian world view. Is that an issue? Wow. The only reason that we have what was called the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is because of the Christian worldview that once permeated much of Western culture. And today is the fading reason why so much freedom endures in this world. But we need to make clear that such rights were not assumed in the first century. They had no idea what this is like today. Those early church people had no clue of what this is like. They had no opportunity many times to worship like we are, to preach on the streets, pray in the middle of a square. None of that, apart from Judaism in Jerusalem, was happening. They'd be killed for it. Or worse, they'd be brutalized for it. Christianity was born in a world of totalitarianism. For 300 years, there was no legal legitimacy or protection for Christianity. To convert from one of the pagan religions and to say Jesus is Lord was to risk your life. By the way, the term Jesus is Lord is not some lordship salvation idea, although it tends to be that way. The reality, that was the cry of the early church. Amen? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen? That same phrase should be proclaimed in our country today because most of our churches don't believe it. Jesus is Lord. But to pro proclaim that was to risk your life. This was not strange. This was the world in which the New Testament was written. Peter puts it like this, and the same thing could be written over every first century church. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, it was not strange to be persecuted 
What is strange historically is that we are not persecuted. You see, we have a dear friend that we basically adopted as a daughter, my wife and I. And my kids treat her like a, a sister, although some of them are too young to know her very well. But Debbie is her name. And she told me she, didn't, she isn't from here. She was a missionary's kid that went to school at Northland and now, and, and now is, has a PhD in literature and is high. She's going to help me with my paper, actually. So. But regardless, this is what she said. Coming from Uruguay, she would spend weeks on end at our house and she would claim this. I'll never forget this. America is simply a big Disneyland. She's dead right. It's not the real world. We are so babied, coddled. And by the way, it's getting worse. <laughs> we have no idea what persecution is like. Let's just be honest, we freaked out when the governor told the church to shut down for two months. How do we handle this? Because why? We aren't used to that. It's out of the ordinary. It's not normal for American people. To be honest with you, working on the dissertation on bivocationality, to be honest with you, Full-time pastors isn't the norm either. Matter of fact, most of them weren't until 1950. It's just kind of a blurb in, and by the way, I don't know that that's a good thing. I am putting together a list of comments from a pastor's fellowship that I can't wait to share. And you are going to throw up. I just don't understand. I'm afraid most pastors, many pastors, not I shouldn't say most, there are pastors in the guild that have no idea what work is. No idea. To explain that a little bit better, how many saw my new car about four months old now to me? It's not a truck, it's not a Jeep, it's a car. Here's what was told me, now you look like a pastor. By the way, that man did not say that to hurt me, but it's a glimpse into the nonsense that's going on in evangelicalism. I have to drive a Lincoln or a fancy sedan to be a pastor? I can't give you this for a fact, but I would guess the pastors back in colonial days were given the broken horses out of the herd as a gift to use, and they were happy about it. How many understand this? I think this is exactly what this text is talking about. We have put the ministerial staff on a high upper echelon group of people. And here's the downfall that can't talk to the normal man. How many get this? That has no idea that like Cody, he's up on a pole risking his life so you can have air conditioning and sit in your house for five days in shorts and just, that's your work. Has no idea of the turmoil of work that each of you face every day, all day long, having these, 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 these unregenerates constantly on your case. <laughs> Or why are you so weird with this? What is 
It's just, just normal work. The Bible says, be of the same mind toward one another. How can you if you can't understand them? How many get this? We have had it and continue to have it easy. Yet we still do not live peaceably with all men. No, no, we, we, we tend to act more American and less Christians. What do you mean? Why have Christians been left here? We are to be the salt and light of the world. That does not mean we are going to be giving the gospel only to those who agree with us politically. No, we are to be salt and light to the whole world. Right now, in this polarized America that we currently live in, what would happen? Let me ask you this. If Joe Biden came and talked to you, we would probably give him a what for on gas, supply chain, transgenderism, and the like, instead of humbly sharing the gospel with him. Is that not true? Instead, we should be humbly sharing with him the good news of Jesus Christ and his need to repent and believe. The context of the text today is the unification and decency in the context that we have. If you remember, why was Romans written? How many have forgotten? Be honest with me. How many remember? Two of you. How many don't care? Here's the, re re yeah. Here's the reason Romans was written. The church in Rome started probably because of what took place at Pentecost when there was a whole bunch of people from Rome in in the day of Pentecost, at the day of Pentecost. And many of them, according to the text, people of Rome accepted Christ or put their trust and faith in Christ and then they went home, right? I believe that is the start of the church. We don't have any other record of where the church started apart from that possibility and I believe that is the way it started. What happened was it was a, it was because it was from Jerusalem, it was a Jewish church. Right? It was a Jewish church. Eventually, Gentiles started coming to church, started becoming to be uh, 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 being saved, hearing the gospel, repenting of their sin, and embracing Christ. Amen. And so the church began to be both Gentilic and Jewish. The problem then that arose out of all that is that the Gentiles we're doing things that the Jews didn't like because it didn't fit the traditions of Jewish Judaism. And so they started to fight. It got so bad that within the church they were literally beating each other up and killing each other. We know this from the writings of Josephus. The Bible, or the, the Bible, Josephus says, we have to do something with these, this Jewish sect. They're causing problems because of Christos. Go figure. Christ fulfilled the law. Amen. And so they, here's what the Romans did. The Romans took all, maybe over a million Jews, and threw them out of Rome. When they threw them out of Rome, why? Because there was, I wouldn't call it racist, but it's a lot like racism. The Gentiles and the Jews were button heads over tradition and hated each other for it. Eventually, when that emperor died, then all of his laws went by the wayside unless they were ratified by the um, Senate, right? Kind of like in America. And in came, started coming the Jews. Well, what do you think they had when they were gone for five to ten years without anybody preaching who is preaching in those churches the gentiles what some of those were in their own houses <laughs> so here's the jews coming back to church and it's all gentilic and they are lividly mad how many understand 
And there is this hatred going on. That's exactly why he's saying, listen, be of the same mind towards each other. Get along. Well, I get along with people. Let me ask you, would you get along with somebody that wants to take away your guns? Are you really going to sit down and have a really good conversation with them? I don't think we do. Now, I don't agree with them doing that. that. That's irrelevant. What matters is we need to learn how to give them the gospel, teach them about Christ. We must be of the same mind with them. We are people too, amen? That was the context. The fighting of the Jews and the Gentiles. I would, in a sense, you could say it's like the fighting between the... Oh, that's right. We don't politically fight. I wonder what Paul would say today regarding our disdain for the people that we disagree with. This text is exactly what he would say. Be a good neighbor. Get along with others. Don't think of yourselves more than you ought to think. In a phrase, humbly serve the Lord by loving others. Imagine that. Let's just be honest. Let's just get right to this thing called honesty. By the way, you cannot be humble unless you're honest. Can you honestly say that you love and you want to serve Nancy Pelosi? I heard all of your hearts just cringe. The statements and the laws that she has put out are wrong and wicked. I agree. But she's a sinner bound for hell and you have the gospel. We have got to get our political blinders off. How many understand this? When it comes to... Listen, folks. Why are we here? Why are we here? We're here to share the gospel. Otherwise, we'd be saved and God take us home. It's a whole lot easier to glorify the Lord when everybody in heaven is going the same direction. Amen? The reason we're left here is to share the gospel with people that do not know Him. It's not my, it's not my job to change their opinions. That's God's job. William Barclay, he probably one of the most common commentators that most, many, many people use. I personally don't. This is the first time I've ever really quoted him. But this idea of be of the same mind towards another, here's what he says, we are to live in harmony with one another. It was Nelson who after one of the great victories sent back a dispatch in which he gave us the reason for it. I had the happiness to command a band of brothers. Now do you know what we're talking about? A band of brothers. It is a band of brothers that any Christian church should be. In other words, he looks at this as we are to have the same mind one another within the church. Now let me ask you, is that a true principle? Absolutely. We're together on this. But what are we together on what are the most important issues that we're together on? Well, transgenderism and this and that and, and gas and, 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 and homosexuality. Those are the... No, 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 no. I understand. Yeah, we, we can be there and, and be against that because the Bible is for it. But we need to be together on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the most important. All these other issues will go away. Let me ask, is it true that when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, things in your life change? Absolutely. You can do everything you can to change the political system. It is a giant and Satan's behind it. You are not going to win. 
But on the other token, if you share with that man or that woman the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Lord changes their heart, wow, things change. Things change. The mode of church government is unconstrained, but peace and peace, this is the end of that quote here, um, it is a band of brothers that any Christian church should be. This church government is un, un, unconstrained. It's but peace conquered. Kindness and goodwill are indispensable. When strife enters into any Christian society, the hope of doing any good work is gone. Barclay believes this encouragement is to the church. But let me ask you, doesn't that same thing apply to those outside the church? Shouldn't we try to live in harmony with them also? If we're not living in harmony with them, then how in the world are they going to know the Lord? True or false? I think it's very true. Can you imagine when peace and concord and, 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 and kindness and goodwill are not with people of the world? We should be at peace with the world, amen? There's more verses that tell us that too, by the way. It's not just this one. Verse 16 is much like the issues found in verse 3. Live in harmony with each other. How are we going to do that? And it's interesting how he does this. So be of the same mind towards one another or live in harmony together. That's the idea. Live in harmony together. How many would say, I would love to live in harmony with everybody? Wouldn't that be great? By the way, what is so appealing about the millennial kingdom? I will tell you this, living in harmony together. Amen? Christ is in charge. I cannot wait for the millennial kingdom. What a great day that'll be. But at this time in our history, we need to live in harmony even with people that we disagree with. How can we do that? Well, the text says it. Not only does it give the main statement, this is how it's all broken down, it's the main statement is, be of the same mind towards another. Live in harmony together. How? Don't be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. And don't be wise in your own estimation. It gives us three things that should be evident in a Christian's life. Amen. Live in harmony together. Don't be haughty. Fellowship with the lowly. And it concludes with a, with a direct application to the audience. Stop being so stinking arrogant. Amen? That's exactly what it's saying. Stop being so stinking arrogant. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us the same thing. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without with which, one, which no one will see the Lord. He's saying the, that Hebrews 12 really is the, would be the commentary on this verse. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, it is impossible to see the Lord unless you are striving for peace with unbelievers. Amen? Paul did not take a baseball back and start hitting people over the head saying, now that you're, now that you're knocked out, I'm going to tell you, you need to be saved. No, he lovingly shared what Jesus did for them. Jesus did the same thing, did he not? So the first one, let's, let's look at that. First one is basically, don't be haughty in mind. How many have that in your verse? Don't be haughty. That word haughty. So the whole big thing is live in harmony together. How do we do that? Don't be haughty. Don't be haughty. Don't be wise with yourself. Don't be proud of what you know. Don't be wise in your own conceit. 
I loved what Martin Lloyd Jones said. How many know? How many Martin Lloyd Jones? All you can get is is recordings. You can't. Most many of them aren't written down, but I think there are some in his books. But the the point is, he's an old time preacher in England, right? Or Welsh? Well, yeah. And just dynamic. Here's what he says. I love it. It says, "Don't overestimate yourself." Don't overestimate yourself. Amen. I will tell you, the older you get, the less you overestimate yourself. Physically. I remember looking at a map with a guy and, and there's like, you're here and you need to go over here and there's three mountains that you've got to cross. I can do that. maybe that was an overestimation today I wouldn't even think about it maybe in three days I could do that maybe but I'd have to get back in shape but we overestimate ourselves this isn't talking about physical we overestimate ourselves in our minds oh yeah I know this we had one of our children I can do this. Is that what it was? What was it? I can. Let me do it. It was hilarious. It was, we're putting down uh, sticky back tile. How many know what that is? I need that. Okay. <laughs> he would walk around, pick up the tile. I don't know how he did that. And then go move it somewhere else and put it there. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, I get it. You say, well, that's expected of a two-year-old. Yes, it is. It's expected of a two-year-old. It's not expected in an adult. But it is practiced by adults all the time. I will tell you this, and I think it's an awesome thing. A great theologian doesn't know a lot about theology say what let me explain it to you if you're a great theologian if you have studied and studied you realize how little you really do know and therefore it's not oh that's weird that's dumb that guy's an idiot isn't that what we do in reality, we said, you know, what are you thinking? What are you saying? And let's go back to the text and let's study it together. Because guess what? There are verses you have not studied yet. Don't overestimate yourself. I, okay, that's, that's Martin Lloyd-Jones. What a great theologian. I just love him. And then there's my quote. Don't be too big for your britches. Right? Don't be too big for your britches. Don't overestimate your... Parents do this a lot. We raise our kids differently. Not like so-and-so. Reality is none of us raise our kids perfectly. And certainly, we have all made mistakes. Amen? That was really weak. All of us have made mistakes. But to put other parents down to others due to your great wisdom in child raising is simply conceit. Arrogance. Wise in your own conceit. Self-designated as the the wise-minded ones. This is a warning formed by Paul out of his struggles with elites and pharisaical attitudes within and without the church. Christ took time to lovingly care for them even though they were dead wrong. To be wise-minded is a positive trait in the Hellenistic sources and in most of the New Testament occurrences. We're to know the Lord. Amen? We're to understand who He is and grow in knowledge and 
there's a key word here, and in wisdom. The one who is full of knowledge and has little wisdom, that is the definition of a fool. We have a ton of knowledge at our disposal. The problem is we don't practice that knowledge. Instead, we pick and make fun of other people doing things differently than what we would do. Here in, and in 1 and 2 Corinthians, wise-minded is in the negative. Why? And this is where the commentators get all confused and it's all over the map on this, truly. Gnosticism does play a role in this. But the reality is, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, kind of gives everything a simplistic view of what this is. And that's what I'm going to do today. Do not be wise in yourself, but fear God and refrain from all evil. Amen. Don't be the guy that knows everything because you don't. The effect of these minor alterations that we can find is related to the citation closely to the congregational situation in Rome. It's my way, said the Jews. It's my way, said the Gentiles. How in the world could they both be right? Frankly, they were both wrong because they were not living in harmony with one another. Amen. Listen, it's very simple. If you have a problem with someone within the church, what do you do? I don't care if you're a man or a woman, man up. How many get that? I am not preaching. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, pronoun stuff. I'm saying, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, you go to the person and talk to them face to face and shut your mouth with everybody else. Amen? It's a thing called gossip and slander. Gossip and slander is the epitome and the exact opposite of what this is saying. I know this, and this is what they, so I'm going to just crucify them. Ooh. How many love gossip? Here, Paul's trying to deal with the superiority claims of congregations and ethnic groups. The critique of pride makes clear that Paul wishes to make to place an additional bulwark against prideful tendency. Be not wise within yourself. No one likes an arrogant person. We tend to push them away from such attitude. We don't want to be around them. They're pr he's proud of his knowledge. He thinks he's got it all figured out. By the way, if you think you've got the Word of God all figured out, you are a fool. You are a complete fool. We are growing. We are learning. You say, well, it's like we should all be humble. Yep. I will tell you this. If you read your guru more than you read Scripture, you're going to become arrogant and not humble. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading books written on the Scripture, but if that replaces the Scripture, you're going to have an arrogant problem. The, again, Martin Lord joins Jones, and by the way, the reason... I listened to him quite a few times this week. And the reason is, is I think he's on the right track. I think he's got this, all this Greek figured out and is heading down what Paul's trying to express. You see, he calls it the greatest of all sins, arrogance. The sin, because what, what are we talking about? The sin of intellectual pride. There is something foolish about the vain show of knowledge. 
the pride aura that is expressed in our conceited knowledge. It was Satan's pride that put him out of heaven, was it not? It was Satan's pride that tempted Eve. And it was Eve's pride that started this whole mess in the first place. He will, be, he will eventually be thrown in the lake of fire, yet he's still buffeting God and believes he can win. You say, well, that's dumb. That's the point. It's all couched in pride. It's all couched in pride. I think the greatest example of pride would be um, one of my nemesis <laughs> who just hated everything I said. Well, not, not that. If I agreed with him or it was kind of like his definition, he loved me. He thought I was the greatest preacher in the world. But as soon as I tried to make people think and not just spit back a definition, that was pushback. How many understand that? It's like word for word has to be this certain, like, like define grace. And if, if you miss one of the words that I made you memorize, well, then you're a wicked sinner and you're not as smart as me. Here's the best, you know what? Memorization is good, but memorization can never, 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 never replace understanding what it says. Never. Until you can understand why, how, when, Praise God. But when you're just memorizing definitions and don't really get it, well, that's a problem. There's a group of people, that's exactly what they did. They were called the Pharisees. And we all look up to them in high esteem, don't we? 2,000 years later. It's worthless. So number one, this be wise in your own self or in your own conceit can be understood as it may qualify as the greatest sin. Number two, pride is a great sin because it is an abuse of God's greatest gift to man. We are not just another created animal. Amen? Our, you know, our, our uh, Galapagos ancestors. No. No, no, a thousand times no. When God created man, He did something different. By the way, when did He take the earth and create a rhinoceros? Doesn't say He did. He took earth and created man. That's why we say from dust to dust. That's one aspect, but there's another aspect. When God created man, He breathed the breath of life into him. Totally different than any animal. Thirdly, when God created man, He created him in the image of Himself. Totally different. We are absolutely, positively, totally different than animals. We did not evolve from them. I know our kids act like monkeys. But our adults act like sloths, so... Comparatively, we are not we are not King Kong reborn. Amen. He gave us something that he has not given anything else. God created us in his own image, intellect, reasoning, creativity, and the very like, very different than animals. And we unfortunately take that gift and act as if we actually did something to earn it and therefore flaunt it in other people's faces. Right? Let me give you some examples. You can tell a Christian when he is full of pride when he constantly disagrees and has to get his two bits in all the time. 
How many understand that? I mean, you can't say a word and it's disagreement. Jesus, oh! Jesus saves was what I was going to say. What, 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 what do you got to, you know? We can tell when a Christian is full of pride when he constantly is correcting you or on frivolous or even traditional things that he might or she might have a personal conviction over. How many know what difference between personal conviction and biblical demands? There are differences in those. Amen. Spurgeon talks about these types of people. I really like Spurgeon. He says it this way. The Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome. 2 Timothy 2.24 He says, the Lord's bondservant being one who goes, he warned, Spurgeon warns against the Lord's bondservant being one who goes about with theological revolvers in the ecclesiastical trousers. Think about that. You said something untraditional, bang! Shoot you for that. Get it? Because we're right. Listen, if you're going to base your truths on tradition, we have a big problem. A big problem. By the way, if, you, if that's what you're going to do, then we are no better and no different than the Catholic Church. You can tell when a Christian is full of pride when they have roast preacher at dinner or consistently stating disagreements of something believing that the prideful Christian is so much righter than others. One of the biggest things I've heard, as a preacher, this happens unfortunately too much, but as a preacher, you've spent hours and hours and hours and hours of study. How many understand that? On a text. And someone comes up to you and says, you're all wrong. This isn't right, and this isn't right, and this isn't right, and you just got it all wrong. And, and my flesh says, and how much time did you spend on this the last half hour as I preached it? Number one, if, I'm, if I am doctrinally wrong, you better call me out. Not saying that at all. You better call me out. But if there's a difference in how you view the Scripture and there's no doctrinal theological ramifications at all, why are you making a big deal out of it? Why? Pride. It's pride. It is pride. I will tell you this. If you are sitting here and have been attending services in Romans chapter 12 as we have preached and have not been convicted, but are so somewhat happy that others are getting it in between the eyes, you have a pride problem. Amen? And it's not that the sermons are great. They're flawed by a man. But the text is absolutely convicting and will humble honest believers of their need. Amen? That's where it's at. The connection between conceit and community is specified by the antithesis between exalted things and associated with lowly people. Or, in some of your translations, it gets so bad, it's lowly things. So that's why this text is really hard in the Greek. Only by re repudiating the sense of superiority is it possible to achieve genuine solidarity. And if the argument of Romans is accepted, all persons are lowly because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? We are to be a common man saved by grace. A sinner saved by grace. Those terms are exactly what this is talking about. When we understand all that God did and all that He is doing to save all the putridness of myself, I can't help but want to help others see the light also. 
Amen. Folks, God gave us life. We didn't give it ourselves. God gave us the ability to think. God is absolute sovereign in every aspect of our life. What gives us the right to pompously slither around acting so haughty as if we obtained something? Arrived. Knowledge is worthless without wisdom. And true wisdom demands humility. There was a man in U.S. history who arrogantly led his men. And I'm going to show you that. <clears throat> Live in harmony with one another. That is the whole principle laid out. How to do that? Be not wise in, yourself, in your own self. Proverbs chapter 16. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. How many say amen, 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 and amen to that? Here's the reality. Even in, even in uh, historical documents, this principle is found. In the didact, it says, Let your soul not cleave to those who are proud, but associate with the just and humble. Exactly. Exactly. So, what in history gives us a picture a really good picture of what pride can do. How many have ever seen this place? I have been there twice at the monuments. I've been there twice at the museum that is there. How many see that these are rolling hills? I'll give you another picture because this will explain everything. <clears throat> do you see this? hill, the roll on both sides. There is a man that took 300 soldiers and arrogantly and pompously I don't know if I can do this. Let's try this. This is how arrogant he was. Number one, he took 300 soldiers against 3,000 other men. That's arrogance. Not only did he do that, this is what just blows my mind. He had his men, that's the wrong color, that ain't going to work. Red work? Hopefully. Yes. He had his men on the side. He had 300 of his men riding on the side of the hill. Why would anybody ever ride on the side of a hill? If you wanted to be seen and to see everything else, where would you ride? On the crest of the hill. When you are riding on one side of the hill, where is your death going to be? I will tell you, this whole hill over here, them riding on this other crest, there were 3,000 Indians sitting in wait on the other side of the hill. Did he have a chance? What made him do that? Absolute pride. Well, he lost his life, and so did 201 other soldiers. And literally, if you go to Montana, you can see the battlefield. You'll see a bunch of stones along the side of the hill where they were first attacked by what? They have to. It's like you have to run a hundred feet over the hill and slaughter them. That's all they had to do. And then, what's worse, is you keep driving down this trail and you'll see a stone over there. 
and a stone over there. And it's, it, what those stones are are people running for their life and they're shooting them on the way out. All because of pride. Arrogance. This is what we know as what? Custer's last stand. If there was a better manager, he wouldn't have been in that situation. If you would read about Custer, he wasn't that great of a commander. Obviously. So what does that have to do with Christians? We're the same. We are a Custer wreck if pride defines us. Does that make sense? We think we're better than everybody else. We think we're more godly. Listen, the, per, the moment you think you're more godly than some other Christian is the moment you said you showed your true colors that you're actually worse. Pride has no, no, no bearing. No residence in a Christian's life. The text continues, it says, and by the way, believe it or not, let's get back to that text here quick. Associate with the lowly. If you were to take the Greek, it would say something like this, lead away with together. How many see why it's hard, this passage? Do not be arrogant. I I think the best thing to go is to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 11, which is only one chapter away from where we're at right now. I'm going to read verse 11 and following. It says, I say then, They did not stumble as to fall. It's talking about the Jewish people, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. That is the whole essence of what he's now going to talk about. And I'm telling you this, and let's just quickly read. Now, if if their transgression is riches of the world and their failures riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Oh my goodness, what a great thing. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be for life from death? If the first place of dough, the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, the branches are holy too. But as some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. What is he saying there? Gentiles, don't be arrogant of the Jews. it's, he's saying the same thing. He's practically showing us that text right here. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about pol- politics. It's about our walk with Christ and our knowledge of Christ and our love for Christ. Paul is demanding here that love be allowed to draw one into association with the less enlightened. Now here's the reality. Who are the less enlightened? Well, there are two aspects of that. We should be teaching people who don't know theology within the church. Amen? Amen. But also, we are to be telling the unsaved, ungodly world of their need for the Savior, because that's where enlightenment truly matters, life and death. 
Within the church, Paul talked about this also. Um, or, or Paul could be talking about this also. He's following James chapter 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in a fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay a special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit over by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? But it's not only within the church, it's also without the church. We must refuse to humiliate unenlightened people who just simply have never been given the gospel. We too were there. Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the air. The Spirit of God was now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. We're like everybody else. We are all sinners. There's no verse three and a half there. It never says, but you. It says, verse four, but God in his mercy and grace saved us. It is not of ourselves. It is a gift. By vaunting superiority over others, we are truly, truly throwing water on the hot fire of the gospel. And we're all guilty of it. Haughty in mind, Associate the lowly, do not be wise in our own estimation. The most foolish person in the world is the man who thinks he's smart. It's that simple. Let me ask you, if your two-year-old looked at you and had your attitude, how disturbed would you be? No, we want to train him or her. All of us need training. All of us need growing. And there are most of us who need the Lord. To sum up everything, MacArthur says it very well, there is no aristocracy in the church. So if you're going to take this as being within the church, that's a great passage. That's a great quote. This is not a quote, just something I made up, but I think it's totally true. With outside, if arrogance becomes us, the world will not listen. And shouldn't, for that matter. So the question that I think sums everything up, are believers today the custers of yesterday or the custers of history? Pride and arrogantly marching as we think we should, not humbly seeking the face of the Lord. Total difference, black and white. Is it not? The state of evangelicalism today, in general, is arrogance becomes us. And it's wrong. It's dead wrong. And if that continues, this world has no hope. We are to be the humble ministers of the gospel. We all don't need to drive Avalons, Cadillacs, and Lincolns. Matter of fact, we're probably going to get rid of our Avalon. 
Not because of this message. But the attitude out there is, there's an echelon. There's not. There is us. A putrid sinner constantly making mistakes at the mercy of God. But God saved me despite who I am. Therefore, there are thousands if not millions of people in the same situation with the same need and you have that need. How arrogant is it for you not to share the answer to their need? That's not what a Christian is. I pray this text damns us to humility. Because it should. It should motivate every one of us to be real, honest, and therefore humble in our Christian walk. Mr. Pierce, could you please close the word of prayer? all rise please as we pray close the service Heavenly Father how true your word is how true the text is and how humble we should be Lord I'm ashamed after listening to this such your word just one verse and how it shows our needs as sinners as I witness that we should be for you this week Lord as we go about our business some of us at work some at leisure whatever we're doing Lord may we be that witness may we be a humble witness may we be a, a, a witness that cares about you Lord and about the souls of others help us Lord to be that person I Lord, I'm just kind of, I'm just really lost for words because of how how weak we are and how we fail you so many times. This is truly a, a humbling experience to hear your word, the truth of it. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and caring for us. Be with us. Give us the the strength to be that witness and testimony for you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.